You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hello, you. Welcome to this week's episode of Sex Gets Real. I am very excited about one of the emails this week and where we get to go together. So I have a hot chocolate in my hand, which is my favorite winter drink, and a blanket in my lap on this very cold, rainy Vancouver day. And I'm ready to spend the next little bit of time with you. The past few weeks, honestly, I've been working around the clock, nonstop, every day, (laughs) really without any kind of a break. And honestly, I am so pooped. But when the work is this good and this important and this satisfying, it's worth it in the long run. And I'm just so proud of so much of what we're doing. And speaking of work, if you haven't signed up, for Be Nourished's Body Trust Summit yet, do it. Seriously, do it now. Pause the podcast and go and do it. There's a link in the show notes. It's totally free. It's entirely online. You can attend anywhere in the world and it's going to be so, so important. I have seen all 24 of the talks and holy smokes, if you want to relate to your body with more trust and compassion, if you want to find space around the ways you've survived, the complexities of being in a body that changes. And if you want to be with people who are interested in body liberation and who are asking big questions, then this is it. This this is where we're going to do that in a major way. So click on the link in the show notes or head to donsarah.com slash EP295. I'll also have the link there along with all the other links that you'll hear me mention. And it's happening March 11th through the 17th. And again, it's free, just like my Explore More Summit. And I'm actually one of the speakers. I'm speaking on day two, all about pleasure. And me and Alex are behind the scenes producing it all. Hillary and Dana from Be Nourished are two of my mentors. And they've absolutely changed my life. They've changed the way that I work. They've changed my relationship with my own body in such important ways. And I really would love for you to be there. And the Facebook group is full of so many incredible people, people recovering from lifelong eating disorders, people in fat and disabled and queer bodies, people who want to relate with themselves differently. Many of them are parents and they see the impact that their parent relationships with their parents' bodies had on them and want to be different. So it's really beautiful. And I hope you will be there. The Body Trust Summit. This week, it's going to be you and me and your emails. And then, are you ready for this? I don't know if you are, because next week is part one of a two-part series with Christy Harrison of the Food Psych Podcast. And we are really taking our time to talk about pleasure, desire, sex, food, and her new book, Anti-Diet, which I had a chance to read. Um, It's so good. It is so fucking good. The interview and the book. And I fully expect some uh, up in my feels emails from you (laughs) about what Christy and I chat about. So that kicks off next week. And for patrons, for those of you who support the show at $3 a month and above, uh, head to patreon.com slash SGR podcast, because this week there is a new bonus and I am going to be reading an erotic story so that we can just 
be cozy, take it easy, settle in and be inside of a sexy story together. It'll be yummy and fun and I hope you enjoy it. Before we get to your emails, the other day, a friend shared a post all about friendship and love that I really appreciated And I wanted to share it with you so that you could be inside of it with me too. I put it on the Sex Gets Real Facebook page too. And it's by someone named Jedediah Jenkins. I don't know if that's like a made up screen name or their real name, but either way, it was the username associated with this particular quote. So Jedediah wrote, I was asked last week, who is your best friend? I don't know. I don't use language like that anymore. It doesn't fit. I have friends that hold the keys to different doors of my personality. Some open my heart, some my laughter, some my mischief, some my sin, some my civic urgency, my history, my rawest confusion and vulnerability. Some friends who may not be the closest to me have the most important key for me in a moment of my life. Some who may be as close as my own skin may not have what I need today. It's okay if our spouses or partners don't have every key, how could they? It isn't a failure if they don't open every single door of who you are. The million room mansion of identity cannot overlap perfectly with anyone. But I will say, my closest friends have a key ring on their hip with lots of keys jingling. Oh, beautiful and simple, isn't it? I really resonated with this perspective, especially because I've been reflecting lately on how some of the people who used to have lots and lots of keys in my life now have far fewer. You know, as distance, as our values have diverged, as our lives have changed. And I have new people in my life who I'm growing closer to and sharing more experiences with that I'm learning from and those keys are growing and you know, none of it's good or bad, but sometimes it is sad. Sometimes it's really exciting. And I just really like that analogy of thinking about our million room mansions that are our lives and our identity and how no single person could possibly hold all the keys to all those rooms. But hopefully... We have lots of people in our life that have many. I mean, I really do hope that. I hope that all of us have many people in our lives who have keys to important parts of ourselves. I mean, we all need belonging and support, but I especially wish this for the straight men out there who were socialized, you know, inside of a system of toxic masculinity that devalued tender, vulnerable, nurturing relationships with other men because of a fear of being perceived as feminine or gay. So many clients who come to me that are partnered with straight men share the burden that they're under as the sole source of comfort, touch, validation, emotional processing, and support for their partners. And it's just so much for any one person to hold alone. So I really do. I hope for all of us, a rich variety of people that we feel supported by, inspired by, connected to all those wonderful keys. Speaking of connection, I want to try an experiment. I have no fucking idea (laughs) how this is going to go. So you and I get to be inside the mystery together. But I have been hungry for writing more letters and doing things that One, help me to really slow down and go offline, but also that invite people around me to slow down. So in the true spirit of that, I have created a little Google form. The link is at donsara.com slash EP295 for episode 295. And if you would be interested in receiving a handwritten note or letter or card from me sometime in the next few months, then you can just go to that little form I made and share your details. And literally, it's just for you to say, yes, I would love a letter. And you share your name and your address. And as long as I don't get like thousands right away, (laughs) my plan is to write and send a few notes uh, each week. And, you know, I have no idea what's about to happen. 
I also have no idea what I'm going to say. I mostly just really want to get into the practice of sharing thoughts and feelings and asking questions and being inside of it with you. I think that getting real mail can feel really special these days, and I want more of that for all of us. So it might be a few months before I get to everyone. The form's only going to be open until early March uh, of 2020, uh, just because I have no idea if five people or 500 people or 5,000 people are about to go (laughs) put their information in. But if you'd like a note from me at some point, check that out. The link is at donsarah.com slash EP295. And you can not only share your name and your address, but one thing that you'd really like to hear from me. So it's an experiment. Let's see what happens. And don't not put your information in because you're worried too many people are doing it. There have been a couple of times in the past when I have done like little Christmas card giveaways and things. And I've heard later that people were afraid there was too many people and they just wouldn't get it. And then so many people thought that (laughs) I only got like a few dozen people. So please, if that's interesting to you and you're willing to share your information, nobody else will see it, but me go do that. Speaking of writing to each other, I would love to hear from you for the show, your questions, your frustrations, your fears, your stuck places, your curiosities, send them my way. There's a contact form at donsarah.com. And I really, really, truly, genuinely love hearing from you. The emails you send mean so much. And I really know it takes a lot of courage to share and ask some of the things that you do. So let me know what you're worrying about, wondering about, and I will do my best to field it on a future episode of the show. Okay, one last thing before we get to your emails. The next cohort of my Power in Pleasure online course is starting March 22nd. So that's four weeks from when this episode drops. And if you want to join me for this five-week online class of exploring and understanding your relationship with pleasure, check it out. We talk all about the stories we inherited from our families about pleasure. We talk about food and finding pleasure in our food and the complications of that. We talk about bodies and embodiment, movement, sex and the erotic, boundaries, and how we can begin practicing a new relationship with pleasure. It's incredibly deep for the five weeks that we do that. And there's six live weekly group calls, which are really my favorite. We share such beautiful, tender, important things with each other on those calls, myself included. Every single time I run the course, I show up, I answer the questions based on how I'm feeling that day or the questions I'm asking. I show up on the calls and share, you know, about the things that I'm inside of too, because I'm still trying to figure it all out, just like all of you. So if the Power and Pleasure course sounds like something you might want to be a part of, details are at donsarah.com slash pleasure course. Super easy. donsarah.com slash pleasure course. And we will be starting that in just a couple of weeks. So check it out. This first question (laughs) for this week's episode, we are going to go really deep. We are going to go really deep. We've got gelatinous fish and Hollywood films and hooking up and a whole lot more all to answer this one email. And also towards the end of my response, we're also going to talk about who asks these kinds of questions because it's really interesting. (laughs) There's a part of me that's tempted to say, hey, if you're a straight white guy and you're listening to this, I dare you to get to the end to listen to it all. Um, But there's also a part of me that's like, well, if the rest of us can be inside these questions, then eventually all of us will be. So uh, needless to say, hold on to your horses because we are about to gallop, gallop into the depths of humanity. I also just want to share, typically when I'm answering your questions, I think about the question, maybe jot down a couple of notes and then just kind of like riff. But this one, as you're about to hear, is um, pretty deep and wide. And so I went and looked up a couple of statistics, got a quote, from a colleague of mine that I really love um, and wrote down a couple of, of thoughts and questions 
to ensure that we had a lot of richness. So here's the question. It's from Paul. And Paul asked, hi, Dawn. I am a white, middle-aged, liberal man. Sexually liberal to all aspects of modern-day sexual liberation and equality. I love that people today live in a more open society compared to when I grew up in the 80s. And then just a note from me, I removed some derogatory slang here that Paul used to try and kind of demonstrate how things have changed, but it didn't need to be on the air. He goes on to say, thank goodness people have become more aware of the origin of terms like these, but we have more progress to make for sure. My question lies with preferences and society. Preferences are personal. I love people for who they are. I really do. But sometimes sexual preferences can be like food. Not everybody likes all foods. Take liver, for example. Do you think it's bad if someone says or even thinks to themselves they don't like redheads or very skinny men, short men or fat chicks, or the idea that a hairy scrotum turns them off? I mean this in a serious way. Isn't it okay to feel this way? Like if you don't like rare meat or even meat at all? Isn't there a way to express this without being a societal disgrace? Serious question. Thank you, Paul. (laughs) Well, hi, Paul. You clearly listened to uh, episode 293, and I suspect that's why you're writing in. Uh, thank you for asking what I know a lot of people are asking themselves whenever they hear me answer questions like the one that I did uh, in a previous episode recently. To answer this question, we're going to have to position ourselves first, not as individuals, but as parts of a collective. It's important. So let's just kind of talk about human beings really generally. General. Human beings are wired for belonging. The oldest parts of our brain know that our survival depends on being with other human beings. Nearly everything that we do, deep down, is driven by our need to belong. And we're also at this particular moment in time, all living inside of a variety of dominant systems that, above all else, want to hoard and maintain power. And these are systems that most of us weren't taught about when we went to school and growing up. I'm talking about things like white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, ableism, fat phobia, colonialism, systems that none of us who are alive today created or consented to, but nonetheless, we either benefit from or suffer under, sometimes both at the same time, these systems. And many of us that are in Western culture have no idea how to understand, identify, or speak to power, the power that exists in our lives and the ways that it flows between all of us. And I think like what's so shitty is we are all impacted by this. These dominant systems are the actual water we swim in, the air we breathe. And some of us are more aware of them than others. And some of us are working to, frankly, overturn and dismantle these systems and institutions because they have not always existed. Capitalism has not always existed. Patriarchy has not always existed, which means that there's a future that's possible where they don't exist once again. So why is it important when we're talking about things like whether or not we like rare meat or certain kinds of bodies because as human beings in our deep drive to belong and as people existing inside of a variety of systems and cultures, we are all biased. Those biases are rarely inherent. But I think the tricky thing is that a lot of our biases feel inherent, right? They feel as if that's just how we were born. So I was thinking about your food question, you know, not everybody likes liver, say, and I was reflecting on my own life, right? I I was raised in San Diego, California in the United States to a white middle-class family. And I can tell you, 
a food that I absolutely do not like is lutefisk, which is this gelatinous lye pickled white fish that's traditional in Norway. It's a big nobody nope for me. Gelatinous lye pickled white fish. Nope. But when I think about that, I'm also really aware that if I had been exposed to that early and often, especially as a part of really fun, merry family holidays, like lots of Norwegian children are, I'd probably enjoy it or at a minimum, I would tolerate it and have an emotional connection to it. Maybe it would have been my grandparents' favorite food or my mom's or the food that showed up at almost every potluck. And we can, of course, argue all day long about food preferences and where they come from, but so much of what we like or don't like is because of the people around us, the culture around us, and then the meaning that we make from the events that we're a part of. What's abundant, what's scarce, what's valued and treasured, and what others think about those things. All of that impacts our preferences. And then, of course, on top of that, our tastes change throughout our lives. But things are way more delicate and nuanced when we start talking about human beings. The things that most of us believe to be attractive or desirable are largely impacted by the fact that we've been told we're supposed to find them attractive and desirable. And those messages are beaten into us from every possible angle throughout our lives, every single day, everywhere we look. Because the dominant systems and all of the people that have the most power make the most profit when we're collectively chasing and valuing very specific things. It helps them to continue to hoard power and money. There have been many studies done throughout the decades in a number of fields demonstrating that different kinds of bodies, shapes, and sizes have been prized and valued in different cultures throughout time. And typically, the bodies that are most prized at a particular time in a particular place are those that the richest and the most affluent have. So when we are in a period where things are scarce and people are facing famine, it's pretty common that the most powerful people who typically also have an abundance of food and access, the fetish or the preference du jour is around curvier, heavier, or less thin bodies. And inside of capitalism and white supremacy, fairer, thinner bodies are prized. And under patriarchy, younger bodies are prized. They're easier to control. Holding that, we also have studies that show that, and and I mean, these are like brief periods of time. So think about this in scale, right? We have so many studies that show similar findings when people are exposed to images featuring a wide range of body sizes for just 20 minutes. Their feelings and preferences for body size shift to be more open to a more diverse range of bodies. Whereas people shown images that are very thin bodies and only very thin bodies for that same amount of time then show higher levels of disgust for non-thin bodies. So think about that. That's just 20 minutes. I think another really important and accessible example is movies. Most of us who live in the United States and Canada or Western culture were raised on movies and we continue to enjoy them to this day, you know, all kinds of movies. And Imran Siddiqui is someone that I really admire. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Imran before. And Imran is a pop culture critic who does a lot of work around diversity in films. And one of the reasons that movies and TV shows are important is because when we watch a movie or a TV show, we're essentially being asked to step into someone else's world. And that's an experience of empathy. We feel into the experience of the characters that are centered. And that begs the question, who gets centered? So I looked actually at a TEDx talk that Imran gave a couple of years ago. It's something I've shared before in a number of places, and you can actually see it. I put the link at donsara.com slash EP295. And here are a couple of the things that Imran shares in that TEDx talk. 
In 2013, only 15% of the protagonists in Hollywood films were women. That same year, of all the speaking lines in films put out by Hollywood, only a quarter were by women. And at that time, the top, the top five biggest films of all time in Hollywood featured either romantic or fam- familial love stories, you know, like E.T., Gone with the Wind, Titanic. And then Imran goes on to share that of the top 25 romantic dramas of all time in Hollywood, the top 25 romantic dramas, only 4% featured a woman of color as the main love interest. That was one film, one. And that woman of color in that one film is not the main character. So then through the talk, Imran expands that further. If we look at the top 200 films of all time in all genres, most of which feature love in some form or another as part of the story, none of them feature a main protagonist that's a woman of color. None. So I pulled this quote from Imran's talk. Meaning, in the top 200 film experiences in the history of Hollywood, we have never been asked to put ourselves in the shoes of women of color. So what does that do to our conception of love? So the data that I'm sharing is obviously a few years old, but when we think about how many fat bodies we've seen as a protagonist, as a hero, or trans bodies, queer bodies, disabled bodies, neurodivergent bodies, poor bodies, immigrant bodies, we start to realize pretty fast that the people we've been empathizing with again and again and again is straight, white, able-bodied young men. I also found another report that said only 4.5% Of all 47,268 speaking or named characters across the past 12 years in Hollywood films were Latino, as were a mere 3% of lead or co-lead actors. And that impacts us. It impacts us that the movies we grew up on that formed so many of our foundational ideas about love and belonging centered on a very, very specific kind of person. Who is wanted? Who is not? Who wins the girl? And what kind of girl is being won? Who's the sidekick? Who's in the background of the scenes of almost all films? And who is completely invisibilized altogether? from most of the media we consume. And the same goes for TV and books. I mean, if you're on Twitter right now and follow any writers, you know the tragic levels of racism being revealed about the publishing industry right now. So most of us have been surrounded by images, characters, and stories that drill into us at the deepest levels that only certain bodies get to be heroic, desired, and loved. And then I want to add another layer to all of this. So this kind of ties into that belonging I was talking about. Let's say you start chatting with someone online and you hit it off, like really, really hit it off. Everything they say is super funny and charming. You feel super seen and understood. You've seen their pictures and they have this amazing smile and they seem full of life and joy. So you decide, let's meet up in person. Let's meet at a coffee shop. Now, let's say you show up at the coffee shop ready for your date to meet this incredible person that you're so excited about, and it just so happens that a group of your friends are also there. Maybe they're studying or they're going over a big project for work, and in walks your date, and they have a visible physical disability. In that instant, what do you do? Now, my guess is that many of us, and I have been this person, so I'm also talking about past me, especially those of us who don't have disabled people in our lives that we love, who haven't done a lot of work around unlearning ableism, immediately look over to see if our friends see. Why? Because belonging drives so much of our behavior. What would happen if a celebrity like Brad Pitt showed up at the Oscars and his date was a super fat woman? That was not only several times as wide as him, but taller. 
We all know exactly what would happen. Why do we know what would happen? Ask yourself that. So many of us, especially those of us who feel insecure or lonely or who haven't really started investigating toxic masculinity, gender roles, ableism, and all the other bullshit we're swimming in, see the person we date as an important part of the belonging puzzle. What happens when a friend of yours starts dating someone who's seen as traditionally really attractive? You start hearing things like, good job, man. Oh, how'd you land her? She's way out of your league. Or damn. We all know we are being judged based on who we surround ourselves with. And that's why so many fat and disabled and trans people will tell you they have fucked some people that are considered really fucking attractive by traditional standards and that those same people they've fucked would never date them publicly. I have personally had that happen a number of times. Men who were really interested in fucking me and who behind closed doors were caring and playful and appreciative and really good in bed. The first mention of going out to dinner together, they would disappear. So I wonder, like, how can any of us claim to have preferences around certain kinds of bodies when we are under such intense scrutiny, violence, and control? I mean, do you really not like fat bodies? Or have you never bothered to have fat people in your life so you don't actually know how fucking awesome and smart and resilient and powerful fat folks can be? Do you really not like fat bodies or is it that you secretly dread the looks and the comments and the reality of walking down the street with a fat person or of being seen in a restaurant with a fat person who's eating? Do you really not find trans women attractive or are you afraid that people will make decisions about your sexuality and paint you as this flattened one note version of yourself if you're seen with a trans woman? And I think it's a different side of the same coin, the ways that we fetishize certain bodies. Do you fetishize Asian women because they're seen as exotic and foreign and you like the taboo of that? Do you like it because of what it must mean when people see you with an Asian woman? Or is it because maybe you secretly way down deep believe Asian women are easier to control? that they're more meek, that they're smarter because of their gender and race? Do you actually prefer men that are taller than you? Or are you so afraid of being seen as fat or large, things that are associated with masculinity and thus with being less desirable, that tall men reassure your sense of smallness and by extension your value? I mean, really think about that. None of us exist inside of a vacuum. Now, I do think we could say, well, what about in a, in a post-liberatory world where we've smashed the patriarchy, we've dismantled white supremacy and ableism and transphobia and capitalism, we've atoned for our colonization and done reparations, and now we exist in a world where we're much less impacted by these systems of oppression. Would our preferences be more true? Maybe, but we will still always be impacted by our need to belong and by what we've been exposed to. So even then, is it really a preference or maybe more of a lack of exposure or a fear of losing belonging? We are all impacted by fat phobia. We're all impacted by ableism. We're all impacted by these systems of oppression. And part of the work for each and every one of us is that we have a responsibility to root these things out inside of ourselves because these systems of oppression live in us. Part of the work is exposing ourselves to a huge array of body types, cultures, genders, abilities. We all have that means now because of technology, not as a mean of consumption or ticking a box, but because it genuinely brings more richness, compassion, connection to our lives. Most of the people I've met who are doing important work around liberation and oppression have social circles filled with a wide variety of people. And 
they really truly see the deliciousness in that variety and diversity. And I want more of that for all of us. When I think about preferences and human beings, I don't think that there's much about our outward appearance that we can't find beautiful and intoxicating when we adore and appreciate the extraordinary power of what's inside of us. I do think we enjoy being around people maybe who make us laugh, or maybe we like being around folks who think in a way that constantly surprises and delights us, or um, maybe we feel drawn towards people who make us feel really safe and held. But the outside, I just don't know that it matters as much as we've been told that it does when we have lots of people in our lives that we admire with bodies and genders and abilities and cultures from a wide, diverse range of human experience. I mean, fundamentally, when we say we have a preference for certain external features or genitals or shapes or colors, often I think what we're bumping up against is our desire for belonging, our fear of being cast out, our hope that others will see us as more worthy if we partner with certain kinds of people. And I think the bottom line is this is a very complicated question. We're talking about human nature. There's many more layers than we've explored here, like the fact that we tend to see um, Black boys and Black girls as much older than they are, right? That doesn't come from inside of us. That comes from this culture that we swim in and then has very violent implications for the things that we excuse away or ignore. I don't think it's as simple as comparing whole complex human beings to our preference for certain flowers or certain foods. I also just want to name that I do think that it's really fascinating in six years of doing this podcast and the thousands of emails that I've received to date, I'm not saying it won't change, but to date, it is always and only men who write in with a question like this one. And it's always in the wake of my answering a question about preferences and bodies and how we can change it. The ways that we view bodies and sexualize bodies. And I think that that's important because it's the most privileged among us who are most resistant to these kinds of questions. And that's because to ask these kinds of questions shakes the very foundation that has offered us that kind of access and privilege in the first place. So it's confronting and scary because if that's true, what else is true? And that starts to shake the core of who we even think we are. So circling back to you, Paul, I don't think that we're bad people for feeling drawn towards certain kinds of bodies. It's what we're taught to do. It's what we're expected to do. We've been taught that that's normal and that there are very specific ways of looking at certain bodies to fetishize thin bodies and young bodies and able bodies. There are very real consequences for those of us who don't conform to that dominant narrative. I mean, to be partnered with someone who's fat is to witness the constant microaggressions. It's to be whispered about and commented on, and we all know that. To be partnered with someone who is disabled is to begin to understand the depth of the despair and the frustration of just how inaccessible and rude and horrible people can be to folks with disabilities. To share ourselves with someone who feels unsafe in the world all the fucking time, like so many Black and Indigenous people do, is to start to feel into the ways we've been complicit in their harm. It's messy, and it's complicated, and there's not an easy answer, so it makes sense that we want to try and say, but I just prefer people who look a certain way. But I really hope that we can all commit to doing better That when we feel ourselves looking at, let's say, a muscular, thin, white body that fits the stereotypical narrative of who gets to be hot, when we catch ourselves appreciating that body, that we'll also have practiced the skill of pausing in that moment and to begin to look at all of the other people in that space 
and to open to the beauty and the aliveness and the richness of the other bodies around us too. Because we will continue existing inside of these systems for our foreseeable lifetimes, at least in, in a small scale or a large scale, which means we have to constantly practice. We have to constantly cultivate new ways of being. And that enriches our lives and the lives of the people around us. But I don't think it's as simple as I just like thin bodies or I just like tall bodies. We don't exist in a vacuum. And we know the consequences of breaking from those dominant systems and paradigms. And a lot of us aren't willing to give up our power and privilege to ask those questions and do differently. I hope that gives you lots to think about. I mean, all of us, really. I hope every single person listening, myself included, who hasn't done it already, fills their social media with lots and lots of fat and disabled and trans and non-binary and queer and indigenous and black and Muslim and poor and neurodivergent people because there is so much beauty to be found. And the only reason that we can't see it is because we've been lied to or because we're scared of giving up our power. And I just want more for all of us. This next email comes from Curious Little Rabbit with a subject line of lesbian who wants a guy? Firstly, I need to tell you how I have discovered you on Spotify, and I'm fucking in love with listening to your podcasts all the way in Houston, Texas. Thank you so much for being so open and bubbly about subjects most people would cringe over. You are beyond brave for that, which in turn makes me feel brave for asking this to you. I am an identified lesbian, but lately I've had major turn-ons for men. Like, I've been having strong fantasies about wanting to do some extremely dirty stuff with a few in particular. I haven't had sex with a guy in 15 years, and it scares the shit out of me. So I'm curious. Should I take the leap and do it? Are there places I can go in Houston to try and figure out what I might be missing? Thank you in advance for all you do, Curious Little Rabbit. Ah, well, hi, Curious Little Rabbit. Thank you for tuning in from Texas and for writing in. It sounds like you've been having some really yummy, delicious fantasies. So I hope at a minimum you are enjoying all the pleasure that those are bringing up for you. Longtime listeners of the show know I used to be in a really, really similar place. In my early 20s, I stumbled into a drag king meetup in Washington, (laughs) D.C., And something awoke in me I had no idea had been there. Like, seriously. (laughs) And a few months later, I was in a relationship with a woman. We ended up being together for three years. And I started identifying as a lesbian. I volunteered for lesbian collectives. I marched in the Dyke March at Pride. Most of my friends at the time were lesbian. And after that relationship ended, I dated some other women and queer folks. And then I ended up in a seven-year relationship with a trans person. And toward the end of that relationship, after more than 11 years of sex with people with vulvas, I kind of started noticing that I was wanting to try sex again with cis men. And I was really fucking terrified. I was so worried that I would lose all my friends and my community that they'd like take my card away Because I had heard people in bars and at events saying such mean things about lesbians who slept with men and how unwelcome those women were in queer spaces after that. I was really scared that it would happen to me, that I would lose access to this space that had been so important to me for so long. And so then I had to renegotiate the ways that I had been identifying and thinking about myself And I started growing into my queer label. And I honestly think at this point, it was um, largely because of biphobia that I went towards the queer label because at least in the circles that I was moving in and a lot of the media I was consuming, bisexual was not really 
seen as something particularly valid, which is really shitty. Biphobia certainly exists today in lots of different ways. But I also at the time thought that bisexual meant you were interested in men and women in this very like cis binary way. Now I know that bisexual simply means I'm attracted to people that are the same gender as me and that are different genders than me. That's the bi. So that certainly fits with my experience of sexuality because I enjoy people from all kinds of different genders and bodies. And then I ended up having this wonderful series of lovers who were cis men. I mean, in that time, I also had some really terrible sexual violence happen, but it was a journey. It was a process and I was scared. And I think all of that is to say our sexuality is fluid. You know, for some of us, that fluidity is kind of swaying back and forth in the same general space of this like multi-dimensional galaxy that is sexuality. And then there's others of us who travel vast differences over the course of our lifetimes and change trajectories. And nothing invalidates our prior identities or the experiences that we've had. It's simply a matter of changing. You know, I discovered new things about myself over the course of different relationships and changing my relationship with myself. And all of those were valid, just different. I also think sometimes we cling way too tightly to labels because we're scared of losing belonging or community, um, or we're worried that we're going to be called a fraud. <laughs> I've also heard of people who really, really cling to a particular label because they don't want their families to suddenly feel vindicated and thinking that it was like a phase or something. So it's normal and real to be scared and worried about a changing relationship with something that we thought was pretty true. And I think in the end, it's about your happiness and living your truth to the best of your ability. And sometimes our best is staying safe and not being out because of what's going on in our life. So for you, curious little rabbit, it sounds like you're eager to experiment and to see if these fantasies about men will be as delicious in real life as they are in your head. And if you really do want to find out, I think it's going to be pretty straightforward finding someone who's up for helping you figure it out. Definitely play parties and dungeons can be a great place to meet people and to negotiate around like a variety of sexual activities. And I think if you're going to do that, just be honest about where you are, what you want, what you're hoping for. And then that gives other people a chance to like opt into the experience and for you to co-create something. The Houston area has a pretty big kink scene. Uh, I did a quick scan on FetLife and saw several munches, which is like the kinky way of saying we're just going to meet up and talk. So I saw several munches for a variety of interests and sexualities. I imagine that if you connected with some of these groups, you'd find where the local play parties are pretty quickly in the Houston area. You can also maybe set up a profile on OkCupid or Tinder or Bumble and just be really upfront about what it is you're looking for, or even join a Houston-based group on FetLife and share what you want. And then all you have to do at that point is screen folks really carefully meet up with them before playing to see how things feel and go from there. I think it really does just come down to being really clear about your boundaries, what it is you want, and then going for it. It's also okay if you start exploring the possibility of doing this with someone and then realize the fantasy is super hot and you'd like to keep it that way. So um, one of the things I would suggest for you, because you asked, should you go for it? It's just taking a little bit of time when you're not aroused to ask yourself some questions. Like, is this something I really want or do I like the idea or the fantasy of it more? How do I know it's something I want? Where can I feel that in my body? Am I like thinking my way into the truth or do I legitimately want it? If you were to meet a guy who was up for sex, what would that be like? Like, really imagine it. Do you feel ready to assert your boundaries, to navigate the dynamics of being with a cis man? How will you check in with yourself? 
do you feel comfortable stopping things if at some point you start feeling uneasy or uncomfortable and taking up that space? I think seeing how it feels to like really imagine a flawed, imperfect, interested guy who has his own desires and feelings sitting across from you and saying, yes, I'm interested. Let's do this. Try to notice if your body is a yes or a maybe or a no. And then all you can do is leap. I mean, we don't know we're going to like some things until we try them. And then when we do try it, sometimes we love it and sometimes we don't. We might regret it. We might wish that it, it had remained a fantasy and that's okay. It doesn't necessarily mean something went wrong or that we did something bad. Sometimes things are just disappointing or not what we imagined. And then we have that information and we can move forward towards what we do want or something else that we suspect we want. So for you, I hope you take some time and just feel into the possibilities and that if you discover this really is something you'd like to try, you're willing to take that leap and maybe be disappointed, then be safe, communicate a lot and have fun because there's certainly a pretty big community in Houston for you to connect with. Thank you so much for tuning in. Good luck and enjoy. Well, everyone, that is it for this week's episode. I am now going to go record a little erotica reading for patrons. So head to patreon.com slash SGR podcast. That bonus should be up in the next day or two. And don't forget, next week is going to be part one of my two-part interview with the amazing Christy Harrison. So prepare to be blown away because we had so much fun recording that. And until next time, I'm Don Sarah. Bye. You used to light up like a spark. Now you're blue, treading water in the dark. A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sex gets real to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure. So don't be ashamed. Love is supposed to